to The Cannabis Professor, a marijuana science and culture podcast broadcasting from the state of Pennsylvania to the rest of the nation and the world. My name's Scott, I'm your cannabis professor, and thanks for joining me. So for years, many of us have been using, and sometimes abusing, our relationship to sweet, honest, and humble marijuana. And one of the classic and most popular ways to maintain this relationship is to roll and bowl it. You know, form a crop circle with your closest friends and do the old twist and burn. But oftentimes the process beyond the cough remains unknown, shrouded in biological mystery. You know, as anyone who's ever been downwind from a campfire knows, not all smoke gets you high. So the big question is what happens in cannabis inhalation that makes our brains tickle so? You know, where does the weed go and how does my body react to it? As we may personally understand some things about our own cannabis experiences, we're going to take a look at how well science attempts to describe what we may already know. So today, we're going to start with a closer look at inhalation through the lungs, the undeniable number one way to consume cannabis on the planet. So to start, we're going to first grab a strain as our sort of example figure for this exposition. And uh, let's see, the strain I have here, a recent purchase from the PA market, uh, is called White Chem Number no. 4. It's a lovely hybrid from INSA, bought in an eighth denomination. And it's kind of funny, just as a tangent before we get started, because uh, packaging is always a conversation we have in the dispensaries. And the packaging from INSA is beautiful. You might have seen a previous unboxing on the Instagram. Uh, and if you haven't, check us out on IG at thecannabis.professor if you want to see more about what we're talking because uh, I'm going to throw up a little video of this getting opened up so you can check it out with me as well. Uh, now, INSA, I think, makes phenomenal flour. I'll definitely be a consumer of theirs for a while, I'm sure. But the interesting thing on theirs is, as I said, their packaging is very bright, very modern, uh, very uh, attractive. But speaking of attractive, on the very top, uh, they have a little sticker that you can remove and collect. And it gives you an idea, you know, through a couple of adjectives of what you might expect from the strain as an effect. Now, it's very red. It's like a fire engine red, so it kind of makes you think sativa. But on top, it says connection, socialize, engage, which sounds like connection. And then lastly, it says intimacy. And I'm just going to pull that one out and say, I'm not sure how well you could let people know that there is a strain they can use that's going to make them feel more randy by the end of the joint. So interesting, maybe a little off the mark, but maybe over the next couple shows as we talk about absorption and whatnot, maybe we'll figure out whether or not that intimacy thing really does have any teeth to it. But I digress. We're going to use this white chem number four as our example. And the main thing we're going to look at is the potency on the backside. So as I mentioned in previous episodes, if I'm looking at the THC percentages, I just add the THCA and THC together. THCA is the acidic form. Uh, it's, it has some extra molecules on it. It doesn't really work the same way in our body. But generally, once you heat it and you decarboxylate it, it all turns into THC for the most part. So we have 27% THCA and 1% THC by the labs on the back. But I'm just going to add them together 
for the ease of the operation at hand, and we're just going to call that 28% THC cannabis. Now, although I'm going to consider that a whole number, there's a couple of things we're going to do, and really the trend in this episode, you're going to hear me say it a couple times, is that you're never ever going to get 100% of anything. You only ever get a fraction, dear, just a fraction. So although we are starting with what looks like 28%, what happens after you unbox it, right? Generally, you take it out of that container, you break it up onto some sort of surface, and you roll it, let's say, for this example. And we're going to roll a joint in this thought experiment. So here we are, a joint. 28% of that joint is TH, is cannabinoids, let's say, right? So... We already talked about testing, and if you want to know more about why that 28 might even be debatable, please check out the last two episodes. We talked about um, analysis in the labs. We also talked about exactly how they measure this and what it means to be a percent, and you'll realize that, again, these are more guidelines. They're not exact molecular counts, so they're not really meant to be used as absolute numbers. They're meant to be used as a gauge of how potent it likely is. So... Likely potency, 28% joint in hand. And then we bring a lighter into the room, and we're about to light it up. So what happens when we light our cannabis well? If uh, any of you are book nerds out there, you may have been forced to have read a book called Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. Known conspiracist, uh, it was all about book burning, but mainly the title is telling us that pulp most wood fibers, when they're dried appropriately, will ignite around 451 degrees. So, with our cannabis being maybe a little wetter than wood, we're going to assume between 450 and 500 is ignition point. So when I bring that lighter up, and I light the just the front porch of that joint, I'm hitting it with about 450, 500 degrees. Now, decarboxylation, what needs to happen to the raw cannabinoids to make them active? It makes THCA turn into THC with a little bit of encouragement from heat, time, sunlight, oxygen. Well, we're hitting it with quite a bit of heat, so it looks like we're going to be able to decarboxylate pretty aggressively. And the thing is, as I'm hitting it with that flame, 30% of the THC is just getting destroyed by it. So that 28% we start with, 30% is getting destroyed. We're going to assume we lose about a third. So now we're down to 21%. And of that 21%, we need to decarboxylate it so it can be used in our bodies. Now, decarboxylation, for all those edible heads out there who may already know, happens just around 200, 225-ish on the Fahrenheit scale. So we have 451, 500 degrees available, and we're about twice what we need for decarboxylation. So 30% dies, we have 21% left, and we need to decarboxylate that. Now, just like everything else, you never get 100% of anything. So you don't get 100% decarboxylation either. Usually you get somewhere between 75 and 85% decarbing. So let's assume that 21 now of what THC is not destroyed by the flame. Now we're only going to get 75% of that turn into the active molecules that really get you high. So 75%, we'll take off a quarter of it, which is about five, let's say. So we're down to 16%. 
So now having started with a 28% strain, you know, pretty high potency strain, once you just take the fire and the molecular decarboxylation process into effect, you're really only inhaling a potential 16%, right? Almost around half has already been lost just with the flame. That's one reason why a lot of people say vaping might be better. You don't destroy that 30% to start, so you're already starting with a bigger pile. But we're going with burning it because that is very popular. So here we are at 16%, and that's what's going into my mouth and my throat. But when smoke hits your palate, when it hits your tongue and your gums and the roof of your mouth, your mouth does react. There is some absorption through the palate, although nothing I would consider significant enough to affect your perception. Like you'd never be able to know it did, but dry mouth tells you a little bit already of what happens to your mouth when you inhale a smoke. Uh, generally, it dries your mouth out. You know, cigarette smokers have known this for years. You're putting a hot sort of dry smoke into your mouth. And just like if you burn your skin, you pull away from it, right? You ever touch a hot pan, you pull your arm right up because the body always retreats from heat. It always tries to move away from it. So in your mouth, you will get gum reduction. You know, you get dry mouth. You'll get some mucus in the back of the throat because you are putting it into a state where it's kind of getting lightly burned by the smoke or the vapor. And as we said, if it's 500 degrees at the tip of the joint, maybe by the time it hits your palate, it's at 400, 300-ish degrees. It's still real hot. So now it goes past your palate where you get maybe just only a crumb of absorption, nothing worth mentioning here. And you take it down into your bronchial tubes, right? And uh, if any of you remember high school science, your bronchial tubes are pretty much like those upside-down looking trees where all the branches go down into your lungs. So the smoke travels down that little air highway into your lungs and really the last stop before it gets into your body are these little air sacs in your lungs and again going back to high school biology they are called alveoli and these alveoli are really the target that's where we want to smoke to get to because if the smoke don't get there it doesn't absorb into our bodies and get us high so all that previous thinking through the joint through the mouth through the lung or through the throat is all to get to the air sacs at the very bottom of your bronchial tubes. Now these are what absorb the oxygen uh, that we normally breathe and bring it into our blood, so they're going to be what absorbs the smoke and brings it into our bloodstream. Now they are microscopic, but they truly are the focal point of our lungs. They are the workhorses of our respiratory system. And they estimate you have somewhere between 300 and 600 million in your lungs. So truly microscopic, right? Because your lungs are just full of these things. They kind of look like grapes on a vine when you look up uh, pictures of them. And the interesting thing I saw when I was doing some research into our breathing cycles and how our lungs work is that if you were to take them all and kind of lay them flat, it would cover a surface area around the size of a tennis court. Now, yeah, it's kind of gross to think about, you know, cutting open lungs and splaying them out like you just kind of split a fish. But to think, when you breathe, generally the air is going into a surface the size of a tennis court. You realize how efficient the body really is at being able to uptake chemistry. We also understand maybe why inhalation is such a tried and true method for so many people who use cannabis because it really does have a high level of dependability and efficacy, you know, you have a tennis court absorbing your air through these little sacs, and that really is creating a very quick response, a very effective response 
It's one reason why really, but in just a couple of minutes, you really do feel whatever you inhale in general, you know? So 300 to 600 million of these little sacks are sucking up this smoke. And thus, now the THC finally has the chance to get into our bloodstream. But wait, you never absorb 100% of anything. So we know that we took in 28%, 30% was destroyed by the flame, we're down to 21%. We had another reduction due to decarboxylation, we're down to 16%. And now we take it into the lungs. And they say on average that you breathe normally when you're not paying attention, about a half a liter of air in and out. You know, small water bottle, if you will, is what you breathe involuntarily when you're not paying attention. But the lung capacity at maximum, what they call the VO2 max sometimes in science, uh, is usually between four and six liters. So you're not breathing nearly at what your lungs can do. You know, you're breathing at, what is that? An eighth to a twelfth of the capacity of your lungs or max capacity at least. But what does that mean for smoking a joint or taking in, you know, some marijuana smoke? What it means is in no way does all of the air you breathe in get down to the air sacs. Some of it's still in your tubes. Some of it's still in your throat. Some of it's still in your mouth, especially if you do a French inhale. So it's very hard to get 100% of that air into those air sacs. Thus, we're going to assume you get about 80%, which is a pretty effective level, 80% of everything you breathed in was absorbed. That's a pretty good number. So now we're at 16% potency going in the smoke and we reduce it by a fifth, right? We go down to 80% and now we're down to somewhere around 13% where we started at 28 because you don't end up absorbing everything you breathe in. They usually say the lungs average between 55 and 90%. That's why I chose 80. But for some of us who've been smoking for a long time, If you've had any lung issues, bronchitis, these are all things which are going to change how many alveoli are healthy and working or how well you can actually pull air all the way deep enough to get there. So some folks might only be taking half of that. They might be down in the eight percentile of the THC is, you know, from the plant is actually getting into their lungs versus what they were told is 28% uh, of that plant's THC is getting in you. And this, of course, is a lot less than we think is going on. So we start out with 28% potency. Now I'm only taking in between 8 and maybe 12% potency into my actual body. And it reduces further. So now it's in my bloodstream. And generally when it's in your bloodstream, 90% of it is moving around circulated by the plasma, right? Those clear parts of your blood. And the rest is attaching to red blood cells, much like oxygen normally does. And now it's going around the body and it's finally getting delivered to the cells, to the targets, to your brain, to your organs, to wherever it needs to go. It says that you can detect THC between three and 10 minutes in the plasma in your blood. So it seems that, you know, after you first take a puff, three to 10 minutes, you are being biologically affected no matter what you think. And on top of that, they say for, you know, around 10 to 15 minutes, they generally see the peak of this. So that's why we often tell folks if you're going to, you know, smoke weed, smoke a bowl, wait maybe 10, 15 minutes so you can hit peak effect before you redose because you could double dose knowing it takes a little bit of time. You know, the lungs take it in quickly. You feel some of the high, but it still takes a while before all of it really gets onto the road and starts driving around the body. Then there's another step because your liver 
often takes care of, you know, metabolizes and regulates a lot of the things in your blood. You know, this is something we may have heard because of the old drinking issues, right? People drink, it goes to your liver and your liver, if it gets too much alcohol to process at a time, starts to bleed what they call cirrhosis of the liver. So the liver is another filter in the body, especially for the bloodstream. And so when THC is inhaled and it goes through the alveoli into your bloodstream, it stops in the liver and the liver will metabolize it further. Now the liver metabolizes THC also when you eat it, sometimes when it gets into your bloodstream through transdermal applications, you know, the liver touches generally most things in the blood and it will often turn what is called Delta nine THC, which is usually the THC we think about coming from the plant. And it actually metabolizes it into a different compound called 11 hydroxy THC. And this compound is said to be four to five times more potent. Now you normally feel this when you take edibles. So it's something we'll talk about with uh, oral and digestive absorption later on in the episodes. However, it does touch some of what you inhale. It also is changing some of it along with the kidneys into forms which can leave the body. You know, it wastes some of it and you excrete some of it. But generally, the lung changes a little bit of it, regulates out some of it. So now you have that 8 to 12% circulating your body trying to get to the sites. And what sites are they trying to get to exactly? Well, there's two major ones that have been studied. And we're going to spend time in a different episode on just those specifically. But just so that you know, the main two targets we identify are CB1 and CB2. And these are the names of two receptors that are considered to make up the endocannabinoid system. The ECS, as I like to call it, this is a system of the body which is responsible for sleep, pain, mood, memory, appetite, all sorts of things that were used to being affected by our consumption of cannabis. You know, munchies and feeling lethargy and whether or not pain is regulated and anxiety. And if I'm euphoric, you know, it's all these major categories, which I feel like make up what we call the quality of life. And so this is what happens when we inhale it. Some of our bloodstream goes to our brains and it can affect some of the more heady aspects of it, where we find a lot more CB1 receptors being upregulated. And some of it goes into the body where you get more of that maybe couch lock feel or that sedation, or sometimes just anti-inflammation or immune system regulation. And this is going to be more where you find CB2 receptors. But the human endocannabinoid system, really where THC goes once it passes through all these filters and gates into the body, I mean, it's highly variable. It was only found in the early 90s to exist, and so it's not quite been studied as much as most other sciences. So it's very light reading for the most part. You read a lot, you learn very little when you look up the endocannabinoid system, but every day they are finding out more and more. Now the big thought is, accessing the system is what creates a lot of these varying changes. Sometimes you use THC and you don't get the munchies and then you use it later in the day and you do. And that's because your body is always changing. So although, you know, you only get a fraction of what is coming out of the joint into your body, you know, one third, one quarter of what was available in the raw flour seems to be plenty enough. Once you think about metabolization and how it moves around the body to create a pretty significant effect on this system, this ECS, our endocannabinoid system in our bodies. Now, although you might reach peak effect through inhalation around 15 minutes in the bloodstream, that isn't to say that it's been delivered, right? The bloodstream is traffic 
but it isn't your driveway at home. Just because you're on the highway doesn't mean you've gotten to the house. And so it often has to cross one more barrier, what they call the blood-brain barrier especially, to be able to get to some of the more unique targets that really create this effect. And the main thing is, is that THC is a larger molecule. So it's trying to park an SUV into a tight little parking spot. It can park in there, sure, but it takes a little more time to really get it in the spot exactly. And when you're thinking about absorption and what they call bioavailability, the idea of something being bioavailable is really the idea that it's ready to be used by the body. It's no longer just sitting in my lungs. It's not just in my bloodstream. It's in a form which is usable and I can be ready to use it at any point in time. And this is sort of that parking lot theory because just because a parking spot is there doesn't mean you can just swoop right in and park in it. Sometimes it takes a little time for you to get the angle right and get your car straight. And that's sort of thinking about absorption. It's like just because the THC vehicle is right next to the cell, it doesn't mean it can get to the receptor perfectly. Sometimes it has to massage its way in because of size, because of shape, because of other traffic, right? Depending on other molecules present. Sometimes when I'm in a parking garage and there's a lot of other cars, I got to wait before I can pull into that spot because there's traffic and I got my turn signal on, I'm waiting to pull into that spot. And just, just like that, THC in the body might fight or compete for the receptor. It might have other THC, which is fighting for it. It may have other cannabinoids. There's ones that our body produces, which fight for those same sites. And so it's never really an idea of like, you know, I have THC and I'm pouring it into my body to create an effect. Generally, what really happens is I have THC and I pour it into a funnel packed with coffee filters and it slowly pulls through those filters and some of it comes out of the bottom where some of it gets jammed up in the works and never makes it. And that's a clear idea of exactly how our bodies take this on. Now, once our bodies are done with it, you excrete over 65% of cannabinoids through your fecal matter. So you poop most of it out. And then somewhere around 20% goes through your urine cycle where you're actually going to end up peeing it out. Now, this is actually one of the interesting things because one of the reasons why you fail drug tests so easily as a cannabis user is because the body holds on to it for days. You know, they say it takes around five days to eliminate between 80 and 90% of cannabinoids from the body. And this is why, you know, heavy users with repeated daily use, it can take weeks or months for all of the chemistry to leave your body enough where you finally pee, even at 20%, you finally pee and it no longer triggers a drug test or a violation. Well, that's all I generally have for you today, but look forward in the future. We'll talk about edibles and topicals and sublinguals and kind of talk about all the ways cannabis gets into the body. So then we can start talking about exactly what happens at the cellular level, what happens at those receptors. We'll start to really chew on some thick science there. Now, if you enjoyed this kind of topic, please like, share, and subscribe with anybody you think may also enjoy it. It really helps out when you do. And until next time, thanks for joining me. Check me out on IG at thecannabis.professor and get medicated. Stay safe out there.